X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Emily Gilliland from Portland, Oregon, standing in for Jefferson Smith. It's Tuesday, June 30th, the last day of June. What a month we've had. We reopened Oregon, county by county admits COVID-19. We protested for racial justice and police and public safety reform. We held a special legislative session and we celebrated pride, illustrating the importance, actually the necessity of the intersectionality in our work for liberation and healing. Today, back in the day, June 30th, 1857, President James Buchanan's executive order officially established the Grand Ronde Indian Reservation. This came after the winter of 1856 when the federal government began the forced removal of the Umpqua, Southern Kalapuya, Rogue River, and Chasta peoples. Other important dates to name just a few are August 13, 1954, when the Grand Ronde Tribe's federal recognition ended with the Western Oregon Termination Act, and November 22, 1983, when President Ronald Reagan signed the Grand Ronde Restoration Act, restoring the federal recognition. If you need a refresher on the story of the Confederated Tribes of the Grand Ronde Community of Oregon, one of nine federally recognized tribes in the state of Oregon, more information can be found at grandron.org. A few more back in the days. 1930, the first round-the-world radio broadcast came out of Schenectady, New York. 1967, Robert Henry Lawrence Jr. was named the first black U.S. astronaut. 1982, the Federal Equal Rights Amendment fails, three states short of ratification. And in 2005, Spain legalized same-sex marriage. Today on The Local, we'll start with your quick six news headlines. We have an in-depth look at one of two universal preschool initiatives in Multnomah County, Universal Preschool Now with Mary King, and an interview with Oregon Attorney General Ellen Rosenblum on the Supreme Court special session and legal protections during COVID. First up, it's your quick six local rundown. Governor Kate Brown has mandated face coverings for all of Oregon. Oregon has seen more than 900 new cases of COVID-19 since Thursday. For context, that's the largest four-day statewide increase since the pandemic began. The bump in cases comes as all but four counties have entered phase two of the state's reopening plan. In response, Governor Kate Brown has announced that Oregonians will be required to wear masks in indoor public places statewide. That order will come into effect on Wednesday, July 1st. The mask requirements had previously only applied to seven counties in the northwest part of the state. Now all residents will be required to wear facial protection at locations like grocery stores, shopping centers, and restaurants and bars while not eating or drinking. While the Portland metro counties continue to add new cases at a steady rate, several rural counties in the state have seen bumps in their cases. About 15% of the total cases over the past four days have been reported in Umatilla County. Recent cases in the county have been attributed to an outbreak at a food processing plant near Hermiston. The fallout from the outbreak at Lighthouse Pentecostal Church in Union County appears to be continuing. Case numbers there have been rising since the outbreak spike earlier this month, with nearly 100 new cases added. While case numbers are an easy-to-follow metric, it is not the only statistic that health officials are tracking. To understand the severity of the situation, officials are also watching COVID hospitalizations, 
ER visits by people with COVID-like symptoms, positive test rate, contact tracing capacity, and the ratio of cases that can be traced back to a known transmission source to those that cannot. Up until two weeks ago, the state had never reported more than 200 new known cases in a day. Since June 16th, it has reported five such days. The governor said the predicted increase in cases could lead hospitals to be overwhelmed by COVID-19 within weeks. Brown acknowledged on Saturday that bars, restaurants, and other businesses may be forced to shut down again if the number of cases continue on its current trajectory. Brown declined to set a metric for the number of hospitalizations or cases that could result in her reissuing a stay-at-home order. But according to the data, although the number of patients hospitalized due to confirmed cases of COVID-19 is significantly below April levels over the past four weeks, hospitalizations have increased by 135%. Needless to say, wash your hands, observe social distancing, and please wear your mask. With that being said, here's your daily dose of data. In Oregon, coronavirus cases continue to climb. Health officials reported 146 new confirmed and presumptive cases of COVID-19 on Monday. That brings the state's total to 8,485 known cases. The bulk of Monday's new diagnoses were in the Portland metro area with 29 cases in Multnomah County, 27 in Washington County, and 18 in Clackamas County. The Oregon Health Authority reported two new deaths as well. The state's total now stands at 204 deaths. As of Monday, 151 people are hospitalized with cases of COVID-19 across the state. The coronavirus has led to the hospitalization of 1,025 people statewide over the course of this pandemic. That's more than 12% of all confirmed cases in Oregon. As COVID-19 case count in Oregon increases, Washington County has asked the governor to decouple it from Multnomah County. We'll keep you updated on those developments. In Washington, Washington Governor Jay Inslee announced a mandatory mask order last week in response to increasing case counts. All Washingtonians are required to wear face masks in both indoor and outdoor public spaces. According to the latest available data, Washington has 31,404 confirmed coronavirus cases and 1,310 known deaths. As of Sunday, coronavirus has led to the hospitalization of 4,240 people in Washington. The Oregon Employment Department is doing its best, okay? The Oregon Employment Department says it's adding more staff to process about 70,000 claims for self-employed Oregonians under the recently created Pandemic Unemployment Assistance Program. Oregon has received over half a million regular unemployment claims since the onset of the pandemic, with 99% of all regular claims processed thus far. Nearly $2 billion in benefits have been allocated to Oregonians since the onset of the pandemic. The Employment Department seeks to process 5,000 PUA claims by the end of the week, incrementally increasing its capacity to process 2,500 more claims per week moving forward. Acting Director David Gerstenfeld said the department aims to process the entirety of the state's backlog of PUA claims by August 8th. Gerstenfeld said wait times for calls have decreased thanks to the increased staff, but it still isn't quite good enough. On average, people waited on the phone for over 90 minutes Wednesday to file for benefits. 
Another challenge OED faces is processing more complex claims, such as claims for school teachers and employees. As of last week, teachers at some of Oregon's largest districts still hadn't received any of the financial assistance they'd been promised when their unions agreed to furloughs. Kristenfeld said the department is legally required to examine each claim from school employees when summer break starts in order to determine if they have jobs in the fall. Kristenfeld said the department will continue to update the public on its progress with processing claims. While we're on the topic, let's not forget the July 15th tax deadline is fast approaching. Oregon voters will likely have a chance to legalize the therapeutic use of psilocybin this November. If you need a refresher, psilocybin is the hallucinogen found in magic mushrooms. On Monday, supporters of a proposed statewide ballot measure announced they had gained enough signatures to make it onto the November 2020 ballot. The measure is known as the Oregon Psilocybin Therapy Initiative or Initiative Petition No. 34. Its chief petitioners, Sherry and Tom Eckert, announced yesterday that the campaign has gathered 164,782 signatures. Oregon ballot measures need at least 160,000 signatures of support by a July 2nd deadline. The campaign believes they will know the status of their petition by mid-July. Supporters of the measure say they believe legalized therapeutic psilocybin could help treat Oregonians who struggle with addiction, depression, anxiety, and other mental health issues. If elections officials verify they have submitted enough valid signatures, the measure will appear on the November ballot. While the drug has been recently decriminalized in Denver, Oakland, and Santa Cruz, California, no state has legalized psilocybin for medical purposes yet. Research suggests that it can be useful in treating a broad range of mental health issues, including depression and obsessive-compulsive disorder. Under the framework of the ballot measure, the OHA would train and certify psilocybin facilitators who would operate psilocybin, quote, service centers. Each psilocybin recipient would be screened for risk factors before taking the substance, be under supervision while under the influence, and would take part in an evaluation after the effects wear off. The ballot measure would also create the Oregon Psilocybin Advisory Board, which would advise OHA on what type of training and qualifications facilitators should have. Rose Festival parades are officially canceled for 2020. The Portland Rose Festival Foundation announced Friday that it will place half of its regular staff on furlough for 14 weeks. The other half will take a 20% reduction in pay and hours in an attempt to keep the organization afloat to the end of the year. The foundation says the furloughs and reductions will take effect July 6th. These cuts to pay and hours are expected to last through November 1st. After COVID-19 started to spread across Oregon, the foundation postponed many of its big events, including the Grand Floral Parade, Starlight Parade, and City Fair. Initially, the foundation had hoped to hold the events at the end of the summer, but the Rose Festival Foundation confirmed on Monday that those events have officially been canceled for 2020. However, two other events are expected to go on this summer. The coronation of the Rose Festival Queen will take place on July 30th, the foundation said, and a Rose Festival treasure hunt is also in the works this summer. The foundation says the hunt is set to begin July 19th. And finally, Portland State plans a scholarship and art piece to memorialize Jason Washington. On the two-year anniversary of Jason Washington's death by Portland State University Police, 
Portland State President Stephen Percy announced plans for a scholarship in Washington's honor and an art piece on campus. Washington, a black man, was killed by campus police June 29, 2018, as he was trying to break up a fight. And that's today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. Our in-depth look today shares information on one of two Preschool for All initiatives working its way towards the November ballot in Multnomah County. Dr. Mary King and Jefferson Smith discuss Universal Preschool Now, what is proposed, why, how it will be paid for, and its possible path to the ballot. Dr. Mary King, how you doing? Very well. How are you this morning? I, it's my birthday. That's how I'm doing. Yay. All right. So the initiative that you're working on is different than the one happening inside the county, the one that Jessica Peterson is pushing. How is it different? The main difference is how many kids they plan to cover. The programs are very similar. They're looking at the same best practices model in terms of getting maximum choice to parents, no one-size-fits-all solutions, choice of language, choice of setting, small, large, and length of day. The big thing, and the two campaigns have been in talks to come together for several months now. The big thing holding them apart at this moment is how many kids they plan to cover with public dollars. And whereas the Universal Preschool Now program is aiming at every three and four-year-old whose family is interested, right now the Preschool for All campaign is planning to raise about half as much money as would be needed to do that, although they're polling on that. And uh, so we will not get to Preschool for All children in this program what if with preschool for all now the thing to know is where universal preschool now campaign has their ballot measure written and is collecting signatures to put it on the ballot the preschool for all campaign which actually i'm involved with both campaigns which is funny we can talk about that later if we want but the preschool for all campaign does not yet have to put their language in writing so things are unclear the ultimate shape it might take but in the meetings we've been focusing on raising about half as much money as would be required to provide preschool for all kids in the county. And what is that tax mechanism? What is that funding mechanism? It's a tax on upper-income Portlanders? It's, yes, exactly. Multnomah County residents in the, with the top 5% of incomes. And what those are, who those people are, are people who gross a minimum of 200000 a year if you're an individual or 225000 a year if you're a couple. And it's on the taxable income. So you take that income, then you take your deduction. It's on the income above those points through 3.9%. 3.9%. So if you earn, if you earn a half a million dollars, it is some real money. Uh, what's the reaction you're getting from the top 5% and do you care? Well, the thing of it is, it seems like it's real money, but when you stop and look at exactly what it is, say you're a couple with an annual income of $400,000 with uh, the average tax deduction, you would be paying just over 6000 a year. Now that sounds like, huh, maybe that's a lot, but if you think about, you know, people have got their lives situated this is where we want to live, these are the schools we want our kids in, these are the neighborhoods we want to live in, these are the commutes we want. 
then that doesn't amount to so much that somebody's going to change their lives. It's 6000 year. If you have a million-dollar house, you're going to pay a realtor $70,000 just to sell that thing. And it's 1.6% of your total income. It's not that much. It's kind of another long weekend in New York or something like that. Because the concern, it sounds like you're responding to, is a risk. Uh-oh, will higher income Multnomah County residents decide to live right outside the county so they don't have to pay for other kids going to preschool? Right. I mean, the thing of it is, people don't move for taxes like that. We've got a lot of evidence building now because the states have very different income tax structures. And like Portland, a lot of big cities are on the edge of a state boundary. And you can see if people do or don't move for taxes like that, and they don't. Just the commute alone is enough to dissuade people. So that's part of it. But the other thing to remember is that preschool is relatively cheap. It's something that we can accomplish without that big a tax, which is why we can take it on locally. We have a lot of big needs in this county, and many of them we cannot effectively tackle without a strong federal or at least state program. But preschool is something that we can do. That is something we can take on. And if you think about these tax rates, taxes do get a lot of attention, but our tax rates are so low compared to historically. People forget that for more than 50 years through the 20th century, the top tax rate in this country was over 90% at the top tax bracket. And now we're down to something like 37%. People are paying so much less than during our most prosperous years, but the machine that complains about taxes is does not stop. It will, you know, whine and gripe forever until they're zero, and then they'll whine and gripe forever that they're not getting what they want out of the federal government. So that, I think, is a little bit of a red herring, and the thing to focus on is what a program like preschool will do for our economy and our community and for the big inequalities by race, by gender, by income. So it's a huge justice issue. It's a two-generation anti-poverty program because the kids who get preschool who don't have that experience already, the evidence is so strong. This is the single best thing we can do to raise high school graduation rates. And you raise high school graduation rates and you raise people's incomes, you lower unemployment, you lower incarceration, you lower all kinds of things that keep people marginalized going on into the future. And so you provide kids a better life. And if kids are getting good care, their parents are able to get out and work more hours, maybe get more training, more education. They earn more. They can support their families better. So in that way, it's two generations. It's good for the local economy, even if you don't have kids in preschool, because you've got a more skilled labor force and you are more attractive to business. More business comes in and they raise uh, earnings generally. That raises earnings for everybody. So the best economist on universal preschool is Timothy Bartik, and he will tell you that for every dollar you put into universal preschool, you get $9.45 back. So that's the kind of investment we have to be making, and we have to be making it with, you know, where the capacity is. Income has been really concentrating in the very top bracket for 40, 50 years now, and that's how we're going to be able to fund a program that benefits everybody. Dr. Mary King, where can people find out more? 
they can go to our website, which is www.upnow, U-P-N-O-W, Universal Preschool Now, www.upnow.org, O-R-G, and you will see all the instructions for how you can sign to get us on the ballot and how you can safely get your friends and neighbors to sign as well. Thank you so much for spending the time. I really appreciate it, Jefferson. Have a good day. Enjoy your birthday. Be well. Attorney General Ellen Rosenblum is the first female state attorney general in Oregon's history. Up next, Attorney General Rosenblum and Jefferson Smith discuss yesterday's Supreme Court decision, a special legislative session on police accountability, as well as a few of the legal cases pending focused on COVID-19 protections. Right now, it is time to talk to one of the highest-ranking elected officials in our state. She is the state's attorney general. Ellen Rosenblum, thank you so much for being with us. Of course. It's a pleasure. You have been serving as attorney general since 2012. Have you ever seen a moment that has challenged your conception of how we should be thinking about the structures of justice than right now? Well, first of all, it's exactly eight years ago that I was sworn in, June 29th, 2012. So thank you for having me on this morning. Um, Who would have imagined? uh, There's no way I could have imagined at that time what things would look like now, uh, how important our justice system would be. But let me tell you, four years ago, when I was reelected on the same night that uh, the current president, I should say office holder, uh, is uh, was elected. Um, there's been a lot of amazing things that have happened since then with regard to the rule of law. And thankfully, even this morning, uh, this is a great day, actually, because even this morning, the United States Supreme Court did the right thing in uh, the latest and a very, very important case involving the abortion issue. And so I am very pleased that the rule of law seems to still be alive and well. Uh, the June versus uh, Russo case was decided favorably to those who believe in reproductive freedom rights. So yes, the justice system always has been very important, continues to be. Checks and balances, absolutely critical at a moment like this. How closely are you watching? Of course you're watching as closely as some of us are when the Supreme Court announces an opinion. How close are you watching what's on the dock and even making predictions, even unofficially, on what they're dealing, on what they are uh, addressing now, and any any crystal ball predictions, any even questions about cases still coming down or current feelings about the dynamic in the U.S. Supreme Court? Well, I'm not going to predict. Um, there's just a few re- important remaining cases, and my office is watching those closely, and I'll be, uh, you know, advised probably within the next couple of days they'll be completing uh, their, you know, their review. What are the key cases? Uh, most, well, most of the cases that are, were the ones that I had my eye on, though, have already been decided, such as the DACA case, so we were really thrilled with that. Of course, the Ramos case, which was our um, uh, unanimous jury situation. Um, so I would have to check in to find out what is still on the docket. But nothing that um, is, like, right in my plate at the moment that I'm literally watching minute to minute. But um, I can get back to you on that. But we've gotten, just in the last week, some, some really excellent rulings, actually, 
uh, the LGBTQ case. That was a fantastic decision, as was the uh, the DACA case. So I'm actually pleasantly surprised that the uh, with the change in the makeup of the court, things are not going downhill too quickly. But uh, <laughs> we'll say that uh, there's there's still there's still some some opportunities ahead there. How are the protests impacting your thought process? And pause for just a moment as you think about it. Maybe not at all, right? Maybe all they're doing is awakening you to things you've been thinking about for a long time and putting you in a position to do things you want to do for a long time. But when I've talked to legislators, when I've talked to members of the city council, we've seen people who've been the longtime advocates for reforming criminal justice, and all of a sudden the public demand for change even outpaces the bills and the proposals they've already come up with. And it looks like now they're offering kind of moderate proposals Proposals in a context when people are demanding real change, it seems, and it's impacting the thought process of a lot of people, including me. How is it impacting your thought process? Sure. Well, I think my import, most important role as attorney general and as a white female, uh, a privileged white female, is to listen and to be supportive of the community, of the advocacy community now. And that is mostly what I have been doing. Uh, I ha- am supportive of the reforms that are being proposed. I have studied them. I, we have been working very closely in my office through my legislative policy uh, folks, and particularly uh, Aaron Knott, with the advocacy community. We meet with them almost every day. We meet with the legislators. We worked on and helped uh, with the bills that were considered and uh, that some that passed, some that have been moved into um, you know, work, work group format. Um, at the request of the legislature in the past, I led the uh, very important task force on police profiling and then uh, later I developed my own on hate crimes both of which led to significant reforms so I know the, the seriousness of course of these issues and I have uh, you know seen our state's leaders being increasingly increasingly open to reform as am I so I've been working in this in this uh, vineyard if you will for years and I'm happy to be involved, but I do not believe that I should be uh, in charge. Uh, I want to listen and I want to learn and I want to make sure that I'm helpful as we move forward, especially with this upcoming work group that the legislature just uh, assigned to look at the issues that would directly affect my own office uh, in terms of taking on more of the role of investigating and uh, potentially prosecuting um, officer-involved deaths and serious physical injuries. So, um, you know, clearly it has great significance to uh, to me and the work that I do. And, uh, you know, I've directed my legislative director to do everything that he can to support the, the People of Color Caucus at the legislature, which we did last week, and I think it, it went very well. What changes did you prioritize? Did your office get engaged with most in terms of the stuff the legislature just passed? Well, like I said, I'm trying to be a good listener and to be supportive of what the community wants. So there were six, uh, really six bills. And the one that, um, you know, as I said, the one that most directly impacts my office, I would have to say, you know, we prioritize in terms of wanting to make sure that it uh, didn't um, go out too quickly without having really sorted through all the, the, you know, what it really means for, you know, the attorney general to take over Uh, some of the authority that traditionally district attorneys and local law enforcement have had. So that's obviously a big one. But, you know, that's at the other end. That's at the, the, not the the early stage of the issues of police brutality and uh, 
you know, the, the problems with bias and cultural competency that have led us to where we are, and, and frankly, racism. So I think that some of the bills that relate to simply, uh, you know, taking a look at, at the arbitration function, the, the ability of arbitrators to overrule uh, disciplinary decisions, the ability of pol the police to use uh, certain types of, of uh, you know, to overuse weapons and um, even even non-lethal weapons that are unnecessary with regard to peaceful protesters. So it's very important. Keeping track of data, this is something that Mike Schmidt and I share a real uh, passion for, which is making sure that we know what's actually going on. So we must keep track of the data, and that is has not been done well, even though my office has had some role in trying to, uh, you know, serve as a repository for uh, these types of incidents that have occurred around the state, we need to do a better job. And so having a statewide repository so that we don't hire police who should not be police officers in our communities. And we know that they've had a problem in one county or even in one state. Ideally, we need to get to that point where we know that an officer can't simply cross the border and apply for a job here in Oregon who's been in trouble and, and disciplined or suspended in another state. That is very complicated. And we aren't there yet, but we are there in, within the state. And so we're moving in that direction. Those are really important kinds of issues. So the issue that impacted your office most directly, as you said, that would be uh, to move in direction of more independent investigations of officers, to move them out of the district attorney's office, out of the office that works most closely on a day-to-day -day basis, almost having a constituency as the police, and moving the investigations of deadly force cases and cases involving grievous injury, moving those to your office, the attorney general's office. And you put the brakes on that, right? right? To try to, as you said, to get it right. Is that fair? I don't think that's fair, no. <laughs> I wouldn't say I put the brakes on it at all. I would say that the um, People of Color Caucus and many other groups, including the unions, including um, other legislators outside of that caucus, had some concerns. Uh, we definitely brought to their attention the issues that uh, we need to be discussed, but we did not put the brakes on it, absolutely not. So you share... Uh, we are moving forward with this along with with everyone else and I would say that you know if anything we were followers and not initiators and, and that's what the interesting dynamic here is I think uh, how do folks I, mean, I think this dynamic is really interesting right in the city the city said well Joanne Hardis has been working on this issue uh, a bunch of white folks don't need to be in charge here let's see what Joanne has to say uh, she pushes for the changes that she pushes for a bunch of other people in the activist community like hey wait a minute we're trying to get more than a three percent uh, shift in the law enforcement budget, uh, and now in the, I, I've talked to now a number of people just over the weekend who said, yeah, which is my feeling, like, yeah, a month ago I would have thought this is a whole bunch of stuff, and now a bunch of people, in fact, even even the comments from Lou Frederick, from James Manning are like, this is just a start, this is just a start, which I read as, it ain't enough, it ain't enough. And and mm -hmm. and this mm -hmm. dynamic about how do white allies show up? How do they engage with this stuff? So w when you shared the information, you said, "Hey, here's some issues with this bill." What were the what were the things that you thought or that you still think needed to be worked out in order to consider shifting investigations of deadly force cases from district attorney's offices to the attorney general's office? Well, there are a lot of issues, and I was not. Uh, I sent my policy folks in to uh, to discuss those issues. With the group, so I was not in the room, but I will tell you that uh, one has to do obviously with the funding and the resources for us to take that on. We are not currently set up 
to handle investigations of that uh, of that dimension. So obviously we need to expand our group. You know, sometimes I feel like uh, we're sort of like in the Wizard of Oz, you pull back the curtain and we only have just a very few people working in our criminal division. We have some inv- great investigators, experienced prosecutors, but they're already super busy. And especially with the Ramos case and the fallout from that, we're going to be very, very busy over the next couple of years. Uh, helping out with those types of cases around the state. So that's one thing. Obviously, resources, we all know that that that's critical. Uh, And so uh, that's the big one. Uh, So so that, that, no, but that's really helpful. And is that more, is it already clear about how much that would cost, how many investigators you'd need? Not at all. And and so is the question figuring out what the resource request should be, or is the issue, is it just important whether or not you're going to be able to get the money? It's both. Yeah. It's both. We have to figure out, you know, how it's going to work. And obviously, you don't know how many resources you need or what you need until you know kind of how it's going to look. What's the format going to be? Are we going to be like when we it, it made it may depend on whether, uh, you know, how the how the law is worded. Are we going to be doing the investigation ourselves or are we going to be assigning it out to a special investigator? If so, who's that special investigator? Is it another uh, district attorney in another county? Is it, or, or the investigators that work for that DA, is it going to be someone we bring in privately? You know, there's all kinds of issues that were, had not been determined. There was some very broad uh, language for us to work with, and we're going to work with that. But it isn't really clear. Keep in mind that there is no state grand jury. Anytime we handle a case, we go to the county where the incident occurred, and we present the case to the grand jury in that county, unless for some reason... Uh, you can't do that. It, it's, it's possible to, uh, you know, to, to move a case to a different county if there's just too much, uh, you know, um, passion in that county uh, against perhaps the, uh, the officer, given what may have happened. Uh, you can understand why uh, the case might have to be moved. But there is no state grand jury. So being the state attorney general, we have to kind of figure all this out. And it's going to take a while. And it's going to take, you know, everybody being at the table and us doing a good job of listening to what it is that people want and what the legislators finally decide. And we will work with them and we will make it happen. Attorney General Ellen Rosenblum, thank you so much for joining us. We've got to have you on again because we I also want sure. to talk about non-unanimous jury, non-unanimous jury decisions and the impact oh, that's, that's, that's having. That's old office. news now, but we're working very hard to make sure that every case is looked at. And uh, we've, got, uh, we've got a lot of people working on that too. So thank you so much. I'm really glad that that we now have unanimous juries in Oregon. That is a, a some cause for celebration and long overdue. Be well. Let's talk again before the Thanks, election. Thanks, Jeff. Okay. Take care. Take care. Thanks to Dr. King and Attorney General Rosenblum for joining The Local. Thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown, in about 30 minutes. And thank you, democracy. I leave you with a quote from Harvey Milk. Hope will never be silent. We'll be back tomorrow. We hope you will be too. X-Ray.